Okay, everyone, welcome back to Story Matters. Today, we are going to talk about a book. This is something we haven't really done for a while. I've been kind of going off onto these crazy tangents, but this is ultimately a book review podcast, and we're going to talk about Stephen King's fairy tale. And it does seem like I have been on a Stephen King binge lately, Several of the last few podcasts have been all about Stephen King, but that's because we were trying to get through his Dark Tower series, which there are eight books in the series. And then he released Fairy Tale just recently. And despite the fact, me saying numerous times that I just don't feel that fantasy is his forte, I just couldn't help but want to pick up that book because I liked the title, I liked the concept, and I really love Stephen King's writing style. He has a way of making you feel for his characters, making you want to know what's going to happen. Something I feel a lot of fantasy just doesn't do very well. But I also find that there is a lot of pitfalls to the way he writes that doesn't really work with the genre. So I don't want to come across as completely negative here. So I'll start with the good. King just, he always excels at technique. His writing is very readable. Unlike other fantasy books, it doesn't get overly bogged down in the details, in the world building, in things that just really aren't that important. But it has a very slow buildup. There's very little action. This is something that could have greatly benefited the story. And it might just be that Stephen King is old. He's in his 70s now, and I think he's lost some of that flair that made his writing so fun to read. If you look at Carrie or It!, there's a lot of these moments where he's just passionately working at that keyboard. King said that he wants his writing to be really in your face. And that's something I could feel in his earlier work. But I think his later work has kind of become a little bit dry, a little bit formulaic. And I mean, I can't really blame him. It's kind of remarkable that he's still able to produce content like this at his age and I mean, I probably won't be any better in my 70s. The story kind of was bland overall. Nothing really stood out to me. And there's only just, there's one character named Charlie, Charlie Reed. He's a likable character, but there's really nothing about him that I find interesting or memorable. He doesn't really have any personality quirks or any flaws or anything that really makes him stand out. There's just nothing really special about him. He's a generic character put in sort of a generic fantasy situation. Even like the gunslinger, I felt did this better because the characters in the gunslinger or in, in the Dark Tower series was a lot better. You know, Roland was more interesting. Jake, the boy that Roland encounters. I like Susanna. There's also Eddie, an ex-drug addict, who is also very interesting. But this character, he's just a teenage boy, your regular teenage boy. He goes to high school. He has a backstory where his dad became an alcoholic after his mother died. But it really doesn't seem to affect his personality very much. I remember he's very angry with his father 
for being an alcoholic. And at some point he tells his dad to F off. And then he has a rebellious streak where he's going around breaking, you know, windows and throwing poop at people and stuff. And I think he kind of plays around with this idea that there is this dark side to the character. But again, it really doesn't come across very much. Almost everything about Charlie that's interesting takes place in the past and it's mentioned in retrospect. And it doesn't really seem to impact his decision-making in the events that are happening around him. The world building, I thought, wasn't great. And again, this is hard for me to talk about because one of the things that I like about Stephen King is that he doesn't get bogged down in world building. Now, there's a reason why most people consider J.R. Tolkien the king of fantasy world building because everything about Middle Earth and Lord of the Rings was already planned out in Tolkien's mind before he even started writing The Hobbit. He knew everything about that world. And that's why when you start reading The Hobbit for the first time, you get a sense that this is a real place that you're visiting. And that's why those books are so magical because they don't feel made up. They don't feel contrived. Unfortunately, and I've said this a lot of times, there are so many authors who have tried to emulate Tolkien that they spend all of their time uh, focused on the world building aspect of the storytelling and they forget to tell a story. Wheel of Time, for instance, which to me was like this impenetrable slog that I just didn't know why I should care about anything because I just I just didn't know what was going on. Stephen King definitely doesn't have that problem. I, he writes the way that I think any writer should, which is he puts his focus on the story and the world building is secondary. But I think the problem here is that Stephen King does too little world building. And I think it's because of the way he approaches writing. Basically, he just sits down and he doesn't really plan anything ahead of time. He just starts writing and sees where the story kind of naturally flows. And I think that really works for certain genres. I think it works maybe for the horror genre. I think it works if you're writing in the real world in modern times. For something like It, I think it, it works great. For something like Carrie, it worked really well. The difference with fantasy is that you really need to think ahead of time. When you're writing about the real world, you don't need to think about, well, how does the real world operate, right? You already know. You already have that background knowledge of what's our country called and what is the history of our country and what is our government like and what is our culture like. You don't have to invent any of that stuff. But when you're writing fantasy, you need to have a good sense of the world that your character is exploring. Otherwise, a lot of it is just going to sort of come across as contrived and you're going to have a lot of issues where things don't feel quite real. They feel kind of made up. And I had this problem when I was reading the Dark Tower series. And again, we're running into the same problem. I think that Stephen King is a little better in this one in terms of world building. He really puts a lot of emphasis in describing places and locations. He talks a lot about 
what this cottage look like and what these towers look like and and what the walls and the doors look like and a lot of this, the visual description. But again, we run into these problems. I think an example is there is a sundial. It has the power to de-age you. It's more like a carousel where you get on it and then it turns and then each revolution on the carousel turns back one year. So if you're 40 years old and you get on it, you go back one turn and you're 39. And then all the effects of aging go away. Well, this is a remarkably powerful magical device. And I'm thinking, wow, like if this kingdom has this kind of magic, imagine what other kinds of things this kingdom must have. And imagine the impact that that kind of magic would have in that society. I imagine there'd be people that would be fighting over it. There would be old people that would be struggling to possess the thing, to steal the thing, to get on the thing. Maybe there'd have to be uh, guards that would be guarding it to make sure that people don't use it. Uh, or maybe there'd be just a bunch of people that are hundreds of years old because everybody would be reversing their age. But none of that is the case. None of it. There's no other magic that is even close to what that thing can do. It's not described how that thing impacts society. And the only reason that Stephen King brings it up is because the main character wants to save his dog, which is really old. And this is how the story starts. Like the first half of the book, the quest is to save an aging dog. And I don't know, maybe if you're a really big dog lover, you might be like, okay, I, I totally get this. I would risk my life to try to save my dog. But keep in mind, this is not a, a puppy. This is a dog that's lived its life. It had a, presumably it had a decent life and it's just going to die of natural causes. So why this character would risk his own life to save a dog from aging it seemed a little bit, I don't know, implausible to me. The first 300 pages is devoted to saving this dog. The other half of the book deals with saving the kingdom. And again, this is a very generic plot. But by then, you already kind of got tired because you've been reading all this stuff about this dog. And I feel like maybe if he had hinted earlier that there's a larger plot involved, there's a larger conflict besides just saving a dog, it might have been a little more gripping. He finds a like a magic hole in the ground, like a well with stairs going down. And he goes down these stairs and he ends up in this other uh, fairy tale like reality. But he is only going there because he wants to get to the sundial. And I really was wondering about how this impacts this world. And it's only kind of briefly mentioned at the very end, like the very last like second to last chapter. He, it's almost like an afterthought, like, oh, by the way, we've got the sundial, but we don't really use it because it has some negative effects, like it'll make you, so you won't be able to have children. So, and that's the kind of thing that I think Stephen King would really benefit, thinking like a fantasy author and building that world before you get started writing. And asking yourself, okay, if there, if this exists in, in this world, what else exists in this world and why does it exist and how does it impact everything? They meet a giant red cricket. And this red cricket is the lord of 
small beasts. Now, why is it a cricket? I don't know. This cricket just kind of comes out of nowhere, and he decides he's going to help the, the characters. And there's a scene in it where he summons hundreds of rats, like just thousands of rats, to consume the bad guys. And I'm thinking, okay, that's kind of cool, but I'm wondering, like, where did these all these rats come from? And, I mean, I guess they kind of crawl through the walls. Well, if the cricket could do this, why didn't he do it earlier? Because there's other instances where this rat summoning power could have really come in handy, but it's just like this random thing, like, oh, Stephen King had an idea. I'm going to have all these rats show up. I think the biggest problem, though, with the book, and this is why I really feel like it needed some good action, is the bad guys are just comically, comically defeated, okay? It's almost like a joke. And it really just diffuses any sort of tension or drama that the book might have held. And this is where this really is going to get into some spoiler territory, so if you want to read this book, I would stop listening now. So here we are, spoilers. So the main bad guys are these skeleton people, but the skeletons are like powered by electricity. They have like this electrical current that's running through their bodies. So if you try to touch them, you will get electrocuted or you'll just, you'll pass out. It's some sort of magical current. And nobody knows how to fight them. And the main character, Charlie, he's in a prison cell because he's been captured by these guys. And he's trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to fight these guys? How are we going to fight these guys? He's thinking about it. He's thinking about it. And he has a dream about his mother's hairdryer. And he wakes up and he's thinking to himself, hmm, what was the meaning of that hairdryer? That hairdryer must have held some kind of importance, but I can't, I can't figure it out, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, really? Like, is this going to be this dumb? Because my immediate thought is, you're going to dump some water on these skeletons and that's going to be it. That, that was my first thought. After the initial shock wore off of, oh my God, electroskeletons, Probably my next thoughts would be, I wonder if I dump water on these guys, if it's going to do anything. That would be my very first thought. So the fact that nobody thought of this, nobody in the kingdom was even aware of this, I thought was a little strange. And you could argue, well, maybe this fantasy world doesn't have electricity, so they don't know how electricity works. Okay, that's fine. But they have trolleys in this world. They have cable cars that run on some form of electricity, I'm assuming. I don't know. Again, this is one of those things where Stephen King doesn't do a good job world building and explaining how do these trolleys work. So they have trolleys and they have cable cars and they're running on cables through a current Then I imagine that these skeletons should be something similar and these people should have some concept of how electricity works and they should know that water and electricity don't mix. And if they didn't know, at least Charlie should have known. Charlie should have thought of this way earlier, but he had to have this dream about this hairdryer. So this is the big dramatic reveal. He tells everyone, okay, guys, fill up these buckets with water. And of course, there's these conveniently placed buckets with water. 
And of course, the bad guys don't even seem remotely aware that water is bad for them because he gives their prisoners access to water so they can shower and, and clean themselves up. And so when the skeletons show up, they just throw the water on the skeletons and the skeletons explode. They don't just die. They, they literally explode into bits of bone and whatever. Fortunately, there are other enemies besides skeletons. There's also these two giants. One of them is called Red Molly. And then her mother is named Hannah. And again, these names aren't great, but there are two giants, Red Molly and Hannah. And they're, they're really, really strong. Red Molly just slices through this guy's body, just grabs him, and just his body just rips in half and his intestines fly everywhere. So you're wondering, oh shit, I mean, how are they going to stop these giants? Well, luckily, Charlie brought with him a gun. And it's not even a very big gun, it's a 22. And he points the gun to the Red Molly, and he shoots her a couple times, and she dies. And I'm like, okay. And it's not like a very exciting action sequence or anything. He just picks up the gun. She's charging at him and he just pulls the trigger and she dies. I can imagine maybe a scenario where he didn't have a gun and he had to come up with a better way of killing her. Or maybe he loses the gun and he has to like try to find it. And she's chasing after him and smashing things and you know, he finally gets the gun and he, he, he grips it in the last moment before he dies and shoots her. Nothing like that happens. She's just there. He's there. He shoots her. She's dead. It's just, it's the least exciting chapter in a chapter that needed to be exciting because this is the end of the story where we need excitement. And what's even worse is that he later, he fights Hannah, who is an even bigger giant because it's the mom and the mom's bigger. And so he gets another gun. He gets a 57, I think. And he pulls the trigger a few times and Hannah dies. Well, I guess it's described that he, he shoots her tooth off and then she chokes on her tooth. Either way, she just dies and it's totally not very dramatic. Now, the final boss, if you we can call it that, the final boss is the ugly brother of one of the princesses that used to rule the kingdom. I guess he was jealous of his older, more handsome brother. And in fairy tale fashion, he murders his older brother and he kills all of his family members, except for the ones that escape. And one of them is his sister who loved him. And this is a, an ugly hunchback kind of character. He has a fairy tale ugliness and now he's made himself the king and he kind of created this curse and this curse is called the gray. And what the gray does, it, it makes it so that you look like that painting, the scream makes your facial features fall away. So you lose your mouth and you lose your eyes and you go blind and you go deaf. And it's, it's, that's interesting. I, I like that. And he got this power from another well, which leads to another world. And this world, and King really likes to remind us of this, this is where a Lovecraftian horror lives. And he brings up Lovecraft a lot, which is cool because I love Lovecraft. And he describes the creature that lives in this well as a Cthulhu-type creature. He even describes it as having these 
thorny wings with this gross greenish coating on it. And I guess the brother found this creature in the palace one day and the creature promised that he would be king if he let him out. But for whatever reason, this Cthulhu type guy has yet to be freed uh, because they have to wait for the moons to collide. And again, this is all kind of contrived and I don't know why they have to wait for this instance. And then at the end of the book, after they kill the giants and defeat the skeletons, they form this little posse with the princess and Charlie and the dog, which is now renewed because he, he went around on the magical uh, sundial. So they're going through these rooms, and it's just room after room after room, going through this hallway and this passage and this hallway and down the stairs and up the stairs and up this elevator and onto this platform. And it's almost like he's describing a Dungeons and Dragons session, but there aren't any traps for them to worry about. There aren't any real enemies they have to worry about. And But finally, they get to the part of the palace where the walls are glowing green. And you can see behind the stony glass, there are these black tendrils that are sort of moving and alive. So all of this was really cool and interesting. So I really liked that part. I like how he described that. But then they get to the part where you have this dreaded super monster that's going to come into the world and they have to stop it. They have to stop this creature from emerging because if he does, the world is going to be annihilated. And I've seen this so many times. I've seen it in Zelda. I've seen it in Conan. This is really an exhausted concept. And of course, you know that everything's going to be okay, right? You know this because it's such an abstract threat. And I think that's the problem when you have this situation where it's like, oh no, if this bad, inconceivable being comes through this portal, we're all screwed. This never seems to really create any drama for me. It's such an abstract threat. You're never quite sure what, what's really going to happen when this thing comes out. Are we not going to be able to fight it? And I think the reason that like Cthulhu works in Lovecraft is because the characters are very expendable in that world. Because they're really short stories, you never really feel like anybody's safe, right? You never really feel like this guy that discovered Cthulhu is going to live because we just met him five pages ago. But if you have a 600-page fairy tale adventure story, I can't imagine that Cthulhu is going to show up and kill the one main character that's not going to happen. And so there's no real drama. If there were some, maybe some other characters you worried about or cared about, there might be a little bit of tension. The other reason I think that Cthulhu doesn't work in modern fantasy and modern horror is because of the time period that Lovecraft was writing in. When people were very superstitious, the culture was very homogenized. We're talking about 1930s, 40s, 50s Americana. And people didn't quite know what was out there, right? Their imaginations were very limited, right? They didn't have all the movies and shows and entertainment that we have today. And so when Lovecraft was writing, when he was talking about an inconceivable horror that was beyond anyone's imagination, that was something that you could understand because those people didn't grow up with 
horror movies. They didn't have those things when Lovecraft was writing. Charlie comes from our world. He comes from our time. It's like 20, it comes from like 2015, I think the book is setting. So for him, it will be like, oh yeah, I've seen this a million times. I've seen this in, in a bunch of movies I've seen. I, I play video games where this exact thing happens. This isn't to say that if I was to see Cthulhu in real life, I would have no reaction because I've seen him in a movie. What I'm saying is that the impact would be a little different. As this creature emerges into this the fairy tale world, Charlie remembers a name that his mom told him from a fairy tale that she read, and the name was Gog Magog. And he just remembers, oh yeah, the name of this monster is Gog Magog. And all he needs to do is, and he thinks about Rumpelstiltskin, how the name Rumpelstiltskin kind of banished Rumpelstiltskin to, to another world. Well, he thinks, oh yeah, this is like a Rumpelstiltskin situation. So all I need to do is just say the creature's name and the creature's going to go away. So that's what he does. He just goes, Gog Magog. And the creature's like, oh no, my name, you know my name. And he just, and he just leaves. And I'm like, oh wow, that's super, again, super anticlimactic. And it doesn't even make any sense. Why would just mentioning this creature's name banish it? It's not like it was a part of a magic spell with some sort of magical attack because they knew his name. He just shouted his name, Gog Magog, and he's like, okay, and he left. Rumpelstiltskin, the story that he compares it to, the only reason that that worked is because Rumpelstiltskin had, he had made a pact with the princess. He had made an agreement. He says, if you can guess my name, then I will leave you alone. And because she was able to do that, he was kind of bound by his, by the agreement. But there was no such agreement set up with Gog Magog. So why Gog Magog would care that anybody knows his name, again, is, is a mystery. And the other thing that's really strange is that it wasn't only Charlie that knew that name. The other characters in that world knew the name too. It wasn't even like the, the name was a mystery. It wasn't like they had to like do some research, discover his name. It was known. It was common knowledge. It was like Voldemort, but nobody was allowed to say it, but everybody knew it because earlier in the story, Charlie is like, oh, are you talking about Gog Magog? And they're like, oh, quiet. Don't say that name. But if everybody knows that name, it would have been easy for someone to have just accidentally been like, oh no, it's Gog Magog. And then Gog Magog would be like, oh, you said my name. And then he would just leave. So a lot of the stuff just, it didn't make sense to me. And it might've been okay if there was some really good action or or maybe if, if Charlie was a more unique character or if even the fantasy setting was a little more original or interesting. You know, it was very well written, but I just feel like for the most part, this is probably Stephen King's most bland book. And I don't know if it's just because of his age or the fact that he's written 60 books and he's out of ideas or inspiration. I don't know. But I did like the ending. He returns to his father and they have a genuine emotional moment, which I felt was touching because he had to leave his world to go save his dog of old age. And then he was gone for weeks because he'd been captured by the electroskeletons. And so when he eventually gets back to his dad, it's been weeks later and his dad thought 
that his son had died or disappeared. There's missing posters everywhere. And so they have a really nice, tearful reunion. And that's it. And then they decide to plug up the hole so nobody ever goes back to that kingdom. And the kid doesn't even get with the princess. They kind of hint that there might be a romance between him and the princess because he falls in love with her. But he decides that he's too young to settle down. And so it almost makes it like the whole story kind of becomes moot in a way. Okay, folks, that's uh, pretty much all I have for you today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you want to really get into an awesome fantasy setting, I recommend The World of Anya. Unlike The World of Empus, The World of Anya is something that I have been slowly building for the past 20 years. And it includes three books, Ages of Anya, The Princess of Anya, and The Feral Girl, all of which are available now through my website at www.nickalamonos.com. But if you prefer to give Jeff Bezos more of your money, you can also find my books on Amazon. So that's it for me, and thanks for listening.